This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional help. If you or someone you know is facing difficulties, I advise you consult a psychologist. The themes and topics about to be discussed include serious mental illness and may be very triggering for some people. If you think you could be affected, please make sure you press pause and think carefully before listening to this podcast. If you decide to proceed, please make sure you have support and a health professional you can speak with later if needed. Hi everyone and welcome to Psych for Life with Dr. Amanda Ferguson. I'm your host, Dr. Amanda Ferguson. Today's episode is about the Black Summer Fires from the inside with farmer and author Janice Newnham. Janice, you're a veterinarian by profession, but you say you're a farmer, wife and mother by passion. And you and your husband, Robert, operate an Angus cattle farm in the picturesque valley in Walwa in the Upper Murray of Victoria, Australia. You're also community advocates and volunteers and the Australian 2019-2020 Black Summer Fires devastated the Upper Murray and your property. And you say the turmoil triggered you to commit to writing as a form of therapy and you've since published two books. And the first is about these fires. Welcome, Janice. Thank you. Lovely to meet you, Amanda. I, and you too. I was so lucky to hear you speak at the launch of Ian Westmoreland's podcast on Kintsui Heroes, the Alpine special, which arose from those devastating Black Summer fires. And I was struck by your experience as, as a self-described ordinary person, as you all were, dealing with these extraordinary times and how it's changing you and your life ongoingly. And you describe the volunteers as ordinary people as well, who became extraordinary. And oh my goodness. So before we proceed, as a psychologist, I have a duty of care to you. And I just need to check that you do have someone to debrief with as telling a personal story of tragedy can be very triggering. No, no, that's fine. I've got someone to chat to. Thank uh, you. Very good. So this book of yours about the fires is so riveting. And as I was just saying off air, it's very hard to put down. It makes you feel that you're actually there witnessing or even part of what you were going through because it's an account from the very beginning. And, and you say that it started from Facebook messages. Um, yeah, because we lost um, power and telecommunications during the fire very soon after um, the fire jumped over the hill. Um, I had no way of talking to family and friends and I knew that they would all be clamouring out there just to find out what was going on. So um, as soon as I twigged that if I connected the generator to our satellite internet connection, I had an, a line of communication. So I just started writing up Facebook posts as a, uh, a really quick way of um, debriefing but also telling people on the outside what was happening to us. And um, so every day, sometimes twice a day, I'd put something out there wow. and it became uh, both a journal for me, uh, information for those outside, as I said, yeah. um, but also just a way of dealing with it all. And then yeah. in hindsight, um, sort of when we were in the lead up to the anniversary, the first anniversary of the fires, um, it struck me that. I just needed to probably revisit those posts so that I could figure out where we'd come from and how far we'd got. And 
And so the book is really just a compilation of all those posts for the first eight or nine weeks and then connected with some narratives so people know what's going on and lots of photos because I'm a bit of a a camera fiend. (laughs) Oh, look, those photos. I mean, just looking back in the book just now, the red sun against the black bushfires I mean that blood red sun oh my the the pictures it is a picture book and it's partly Mm. why it's so riveting as well as the way you've written it which is brilliant Um, thank you oh it is it just is captivating um it's humorous it's tragic it's oh it's a drama of such reality and devastation um but yeah the photos are they're mesmerizing Mm even though they're so, you know, some are so exquisite, even in mm. the devastation, they're they so exquisite. Hmm. Um, I think, I think it's very, very reflective of what so many people went through during the bushfires, um, particularly those on the land, obviously. Um, but that orange glow that you mentioned, mm. um, we lived in an orange environment for yes. weeks and it was bizarre. I know, and they're seeing the the table set with people sitting around it, and the orange that you're all sitting with mm. in the, in the sort of daytime, and then in the, with a little candle or something. <laughs> I mean, it's it's all pervasive that orange. Mm. Yes, exactly. Yeah, um, but uh, and that sort of seeped into um, the outlying areas, like um, you know, Aubrey Wodonga. They were also sort of blanketed in smoke and orangeness. So I think everybody sort of had a bit of a touch of the um, the drama from the the fire experience. Yes, yes. Look, even though those of us, you know, ages away back in Sydney, watching it unfold night after night on the TV, it was just you know it made you feel so helpless. You just wanted to do anything you could, but it was just so horrifying to watch all the decimation of wildlife and mm, absolutely homes, people's yeah. homes and 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 um livestock and the yeah. trees that that massive media exposure would have been um really confronting and traumatizing for everybody but i really understand that if if i had seen what they were saying on the media um I think I would have been in a much worse place mentally. Mm. Um, for example, at one stage, I understand that the media described that Walwa was wiped out. It was gone. Yes. And it wasn't clearly. No. Um, so I think it would have really had us all running for cover. <laughs> I know. I know. It's ironic because you say in the book that the thing you found most difficult was the isolation, lack of communication and sending your boys and husband off into the fires. Um, and yet the very thing you're saying now that the lack of media, thankfully, was, yeah. the, was the thing that, you know, was also protective. Um, and if we start from the beginning, it was Christmas 2019 that you say came and went and and then disaster struck because of a lightning strike that started in your shire. And, and it actually started it over the river, so right. in New South Wales. Uh-huh. Um, so we'll blame them. Yeah. <laughs> Always. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yes, yeah, so a lightning strike um, and it triggered the bushfire and it kind of sat up there and sort of glowered for probably 24 hours. There was sort of pools of smoke going up. And then it all sort of turned pear shape and oh. turned into um, the beast that jumped over the river and um, gobbled up the Upper Murray. Yeah, you say that when you saw it, it looked like an atomic bomb at first. 
Mm, yeah. When it was coming over the hills um, into our valley, um, I went down to a neighbour's property where they've got a lots, lots of um, Arab horses and they're actually absentee farmers. So I went down there just to check on, on how the animals were. And I took a photo just for the absentee farmers to say, look, this is happening sort of thing. And it literally did look like an atomic bomb mushroom crack cloud going up over the, the top of the hill behind their property. It was terrifying. Awful. And it was that mob of horses, I think, that you mentioned another neighbour farmer and you tried to round them up into, into a corral, but you, you couldn't do it. They wouldn't go. No, that's right. Um, it was actually the absentee farmer who drove over from um, his other property and um, he arrived on his own and he had this idea that, yes, he wanted to put them um, for safety into uh, the stockyards. I didn't fancy the idea, but anyway, he wanted to do it. So we tried to get them in. Um, but if you know anything about horses and Arab horses in particular, they tend to be a bit flighty and they were they were quite beautiful as they were sort of galloping around with tails and uh, manes flowing in the wind and bucking and carrying on. But at the same time, they were totally uncooperative <laughs> and they wouldn't go in the yards. And and as it turned out, it was just as well they didn't because the yards um, were right in the path of a, a fire tornado. So And a tree came down on the yards. So they would have been uh, demolished, whereas... Um, what they did do, as a lot of stock um, did, uh, they, they basically uh, made their own uh, luck, as it were, and um, they just moved in such a fashion that they were either ahead of the flames or cattle in particular were amazing because they would work their way along the front, uh, wait for a break in the flames and then just dive through as a mob wow. and spin around in the back and sort of stomple out all the... Um, the sparky bits and and um, there were so many more survival stories as far as livestock were concerned that I had hoped for so yeah amazing stuff it, that is wonderful and I I do sort of share that that bond or a memory of the bond that you have with what you call your girls the cattle because I grew up with um, cattle and sheep um, on a property with my grandparents I used to spend my holidays out at the property and and the girls you know calling the cows the girls and the sheep the girls even it's yeah such a familiar thing to me so that would have been so devastating having all of the livestock to to look after and I you know I read you scurrying around from farm to farm and your own farm and trying to rescue and and look after dogs and the ringtail possum that you discovered and yeah look, looking after that oh my goodness so many people and so much livestock and animals to look after Mm, absolutely. Um, but we did get help. Um, the Department of Ag was amazing. Um, the Department of Many Names. Um, they, I think they were DWELF at that stage, but I think there's something else now. Um, anyway, um, they sent in crews that came in to help with triage and destruction of damaged stock, etc. Yeah. And they did a fantastic job. And there, there were just so many people that sort of came out of the smoke to mm. give us a hand. Um, some of them were professional and qualified, et cetera, but there were lots of just ordinary people, particularly in the recovery period, um, that really just stepped up. Um, they just brought whatever resources and capacity and capabilities that they had with them. Yeah. And they were the real heroes, I reckon. But yeah, it, it was a terrible experience, but yeah. I think it's, it was the making of lots of people for my boys. Um, they really um, 
they really stepped up and they were amazingly brave and resourceful and fantastic and yeah they become they became men yes i mean the, your son rushing in and out of the fire and you seeing him fall to the ground and then pick himself up again and your husband oh. driving off into the fire and uh, on a dozer that only goes five kilometers an hour at maximum yeah um, and ne he nearly died in the fire it was only the wind changed and yes he could have him. been toast <laughs> he was um i don't know boys do have this sort of sense of um uh fearlessness or they just don't foresee what could happen and just go for it but um uh yeah there were some very close calls and um i can remember all three of the well the two boys and my husband would would come home of an evening particularly after one really rough night and they'd sort of come scrambling in the door and they were laughing and being bizarre and it was just like a, a release of emotion because they'd been um really in the thick of it and in the the face of um doom death and destruction mm. and and they just come in and have these amazing uh very vocal very noisy debriefs but yeah. and i think that was really good I, yeah. I think if they had been on their own like if it was just my husband with me then that might have been a bit difficult because i wasn't there at the time you need you need to be able to debrief with somebody who's been in the same situation yeah oh mm. Absolutely. I mean, in, in that first webinar where I met you, there was this, the clinical psychologist, um, Rob uh, Gordon, Rob Gordon, and he talks about that um, assumption we all live under that life goes on and, you know, this is it. And then when something devastating and out of the ordinary happens, a c catastrophe that has happened to you all, and particularly to those men who were there, although you were driving through it as well with fire only three metres away from the roadside. So, yes, you weren't physically fighting it other than the spot fires and things, but you were in it. But, but they would have experienced that complete loss of assumption that this would not happen and that it has happened, that they've mm. been through it, and it changes you forever and people who haven't been through something like that don't understand they just don't they can't relate to that loss of the assumption of normality and it can never be assumed now for them and for any of you yeah absolutely I think in order to really understand something you have to have walked in those people's shoes yeah. um, you have to have some experience in order to reflect on it adequately mm. um, and I suppose that might have been uh, one of the issues immediately after the fire um we had lots of people that really understood where we'd been and and what had happened and understood uh how we might have been feeling but then there were others that were completely oblivious and um one of my early posts that i put up on facebook was don't come here don't come and and visit don't come and try and help because we were in a grieving phase yes. we were in a a state where um, there was so much loss, so much devastation. We couldn't handle the idea of having um, people potentially coming to help, but also coming to Sticky Beak and, yes. and see what was going on. Um, and also we didn't want to be responsible for them. It was still an active fire ground for quite some time with yeah. the, the fire sort of swirling around and coming back to have another oh. bite at everything. Oh. And um, uh, limbs falling off trees and trees falling down. Of course. And yeah. also just the, the fact that um, we're quite a distance from um, the city. We're sort of 100 and 
15 k's from Aubrey Wodonga. So if people had come up to help, then we would probably have to feed them. And mm. the freezers had been off for days, weeks, whenever they were in think, thinking of coming sort of thing. Um, so we didn't really have terribly much in the way of supplies. No. <laughs> and we were also busy as well. Like um, we had... Um, uh, I think in the initial phase, we probably had about 800 odd cattle in the paddock behind the house. Mm. And, and that paddock usually only takes about 40 animals, but we had everybody's moose had sort of pitched up because that's <laughs> um, the only paddock that could be contained. It had sort of um, some fences that we fixed up, but um, it was a containment paddock as such. Yeah. And then we were just feeding everyone there sort of thing. So yeah, we were really busy. <laughs> you were busy and you took a fire brain as well, which oh, yeah. had a part of PTSD, um, post-traumatic stress disorder, which plays out differently when you've been in a fire, of course. Mm, yeah, um, I, I think I heard the term. Uh, I went to a couple of um, sort of recovery and post-disaster meetings that were put on here, there and everywhere. Mm. And um Anyway, I, I think it was up at Beechworth that I went to a meeting. And um, anyway, they were talking about firebrain. And I thought, gee, that's exactly it. Yeah. Um, because you're so busy living in the moment that you mm. forget about um, planning and you also forget about what's just happened. And I suppose that's protective. Yes. Um, and things go a little bit pear-shaped. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's just bizarre. And, and I think people from the outside don't really understand that. And they just think you're going slightly batty and you probably are, <laughs> but oh. it's just firebrain. Yeah. Well, look, post-traumatic stress disorder is a brain injury. So, mm. you know, this is why often mothers have baby brain as well, because exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. Milk on the brain. <laughs> <laughs> And you you mentioned that the power went out and then the mobile phone tower went out. Oh, my goodness, how, you know, to add to everything. And then the, your house, you're constantly protecting it and doing everything to protect it. And then one of your sons says it's gone. Yes, that was, um, uh, I, I'm not, I, I haven't actually got to the bottom of that one, whether he was, he'd made a mistake or whether he was doing it as a, protective thing just don't don't go near the place it's too busy but uh when was that that was probably about three days the fire came back and had an, another lick at us mm. and then on this occasion it was coming from a different direction and um it, there was basically this big wall of fire that was oh. just bearing down on the house and I just thought nah I'm not staying here. And Sasha had just come in to get um, some more water into the tank on the slip-on on the back of the ute. Um, so he was empty. And I said, nah, we're going. Um, so we just loaded up dogs and and uh, into the car. And the car was already pre-packed with all our treasures. Yeah. And he and I just shot out down the road away from the fire front. front. And I was, I considered that, um, we'd just come back once the front had passed yeah. and the house um, was left with all the sprinklers on. So, and it, it had been, everything was just really damp. It had been, had sprinklers on daily, well, all day for probably about three days. So I was sort of hopeful, but I wasn't going to stay there. Mm. And then um, a bit later on, I was going to come back, as I said, and I got as far as probably about half a kilometre from the house and I met my son coming out of a neighbour's driveway yeah. and he stopped me and he said, no, don't go back there. It's gone. There's nothing to see. Just go, go yeah. where it's safe. 
so I went back and I had this really bizarre feeling like uh, I didn't, I thought I'd be really connected and I'd be upset, but I wasn't upset. And I thought, oh, this is odd. Yeah. Must be something wrong with me. But it was just a case of um, I was more concerned that all my family members were fine and the dogs were fine and the livestock were as good as can be helped, hoped for, um, but the house didn't really matter anymore. Um, but anyway, as it turned out, um, he was lying to me <laughs> or just keeping me out of the place. And um, a bit later on that afternoon, I came back and I thought, oh, I'll just come and see. And and the house had survived. It was a close call, like all the the wooden posts in the fence at the front of the house, they, they'd all burnt off at the bottom and a big tree had gone up right next to our, our sheds. And um, luckily, um, the neighbour had come past and put the tree out and then he came past a bit later and discovered that the lawnmower was parked in the shed was on fire. So he got that out. Oh. <laughs> and then and my husband had come back with the bulldozer just in the knickers of time, as it were. And he had sort of been running around and putting out the fires on the fence posts, et cetera, and hiding in the shed while the fire front went through. So it was pretty dramatic. But yes. um, and the fact that it kept turning and coming back. Mm. And this is nine weeks on. I mean, oh, no, 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 not quite so soon. Um, it was within the first week that it kept coming back again, okay. sort of thing. Yeah. Um, uh, over the next couple of weeks, it certainly had fired up in different places in the Upper Murray, but our main drama was just in the first week. Yep. I must admit that we got to um, the Friday, probably about five days in that Friday, and we had the police come and try and evacuate us mm. and they said that um the saturday was going to be armageddon yeah. and uh, the conditions were deteriorating etc and um they were really quite dominant and um aggressive and you have to go and um my husband walked in while i was talking to these police persons and he just looked and he kept going and he gathered up the boys and they went down to the shearing shed out of sight out of mind sort of thing and left me to it and um because they knew that they might get co-opted into leaving and they definitely weren't going to leave wow. um and basically i said that um the police were wrong because um at that point in time we were now sitting in the middle of black paddocks all around us we probably had a fire break yes of maybe a kilometre or more all around us. Nothing was going to burn. And if there was some storm, firestorm that came through, we could just go and sit in the middle of the burnt paddock in the dam. Um, we had water. The, all our water comes from a dam up the back and the pipes are all underground mm. and it's all pressure fed because of the, the drop. So it's all gravity fed. So we were pretty secure. So we were confident of staying mm. and um uh yeah but that, that that was quite a confronting sort of experience oh they made me sign forms yeah. that um was basically a release and gave the identities of all parties that were on farms so they could identify the bodies they told oh. me so it was really quite uh quite traumatic and quite confronting but oh i'm sorry to hear mm. that extra trauma mm, but yeah. I guess they, I guess they had a job to do. But in order to evacuate at that point in time, we would have had to have driven past uh, a fire front to get out. So it was a bad, bad move, bad, bad advice. I reckon. Bad advice. Too many mm. from the committee. 
Um, and speaking of people not understanding, what about remote family and friends now that haven't been through it? Do you feel that there is a disconnect or have people kind of been able to read your book? Because just reading your book, I mean, I was thinking anyone who's known anyone who's gone through any of these fires all across the planet and people have family members in different countries who go through these fires, it really helps you feel that you, you've got some insight into what you've been through. Yep, I agree. Um, and that's... That's one reason why I wrote the book. I thought that it would um, provide people with an opportunity to reflect on the fire, the experience, as it were. Um, it also gives people on the outside a few pointers as to how they might prepare for a fire, because I, in hindsight, I reckon we did quite well. Very well. <laughs> um, <laughs> and... Um, uh, yeah, and the, the experience, as I said, was, is just reflective of so many people in in any number of countries really that is in the middle of a bushfire uh, and yeah it gives understanding to those people that that don't have any um, experience of their own to reflect upon so yep because um, initially everybody understood where we were coming from because you know the surrounds were all black they could see the devastation but the environment recovered so quickly yeah. that probably within about three or four months with the post bushfire rains mm. um, and the, the autumn break, everything had turned green. You couldn't see where the fire lines were apart from all the dead trees. So uh, by the time sort of um, people from afar started to come back into our area, it was like, oh, doesn't look too bad. Don't know what you're going on about. <laughs> oh, no. But, That's the last yeah. thing you need to hear. Yes. But um, yeah, we were we were actually quite fortunate. We um, we certainly weren't as impacted as some people. Uh, as I said, we we our home survived. Yeah. Um, we lost quite a bit of infrastructure as far as um, fencing and um, uh, some machinery. And um, up at our other property up the road, um, that was a hundred percent burnt out. But but our, our biggest problem was that we we lost um, fodder, stored fodder, but also pasture. Mm. So we had to sell off animals um, just so that we had less mouths to feed, which meant that we lost all our genetic improvement, oh. um, our herd, and we were selling at, um, you know, pretty poor prices at that point in time. So it was a financial loss as well. Mm. And then we had to buy in feed and uh, all that sort of trauma. Up at the, the other property, my husband's family farm um the the house went the house that he was brought brought up in and it was filled with treasures you know all those treasures of your childhood yeah. and family stuff it, nobody was living there at that point in time my mother-in-law is in aged care and there was also his granny's cottage that was there so that went as well so those sorts of, of um uh you know physical material um losses were yeah. quite devastating and impactful to particularly my husband. Um, but there were other people that were so much worse off. They'd lost their their principal place of residence and um, many more animals than we had. And um, and some of those people are still waiting for houses to be built um, uh, because, you know, the, uh, the pandemic then came in on top of bushfire recovery and slowed down supply lines and access to tradies and work um, just people being able to work because of the pandemic, et cetera. So um, that massive interruption to the recovery um, process was very impactful on people who were bushfire affected. 
Oh, and for the lack of community when you mm. were, you know, locked down as well, not allow- allowed to socialize, which is a very healing component. And mm. and you talk about, you know, men's mental health in particular um being difficult to heal in this in this situation because of particularly men on the on the land we know tend not to want or be able to talk about their feelings that's right I I think for men women tend to get together and natter and you you sort of debrief and de-stress etc etc but for men it's it's much more subtle than that they never actually go up to anybody and say oh I feel really bad about this and I'm, I'm feeling all this that and the other thing they never talk about their feelings so um those sort of um interactions for mental health and healing happen in the pub or in a social situation or at a barbecue um and it's always sort of mental health by stealth as it were and and because of the pandemic that just didn't happen at all so um and also people uh, men seem to just bottle things up and they just hold it close to themselves and and we're all so busy to start with as well like there was just no opportunity to even think about where we were and what we were feeling because um you know we had fences to fix and animals to feed and stuff to do so there was a delay period before anyone even started to try to connect with Mm. how they were feeling and by then I think men in particular had sort of started to close down and weren't uh, particularly keen on engaging with mental health exercises we did have a uh, a fair few um, attempts at social engagement at our local community centre. We had um, sort of men's uh, men's afternoon teas. I don't think much tea was drunk. <laughs> <laughs> and they had sort of um, music and opportunities for them to sort of debrief and talk to each other, which was quite helpful. But I think that those occurred quite long after the event because of the pandemic, which mm. was damaging. And I think we've got to do better in terms of men's mental health and finding ways that they can talk to each other and talk to mentors. Um, mm. you know, I think if you're in a remote, sort of more remote situation as you are in country settings, it's not the same as when I'm here at a beach setting and in the mornings I see all the guys hanging around each other's um, in each other's company at the the, the surf club um, and they all just naturally hang there and have a coffee or have a chat and they're, they're bonding you can clearly see them connecting and and really benefiting from each other's company and talking openly and re- in a relaxed way but those sort of social you know water holes you know gathering holes if you like um, don't probably exist as naturally where you are in country towns. Um, certainly um, for, for us it would certainly be the pub which, and I don't believe that alcohol and mental health kind of goes together terribly well. Um, But effectively, that's really all we've got as far as um, somewhere for for the men to go and just talk casually about whatever, if they're able to open up. And also sporting events, obviously, you know, on the sidelines of the football or whatever. But unfortunately, in our area, um, our local football team has... um, uh, gone into recess because our demographics are such that we don't have enough um, children to play and we have to import players and blurb blurb so that's quite dramatic for our small community as well because the football club's the social hub so that's gone. I am very impressed with Ian Westmoreland's idea um, and his 
men's health mentorship program. I think that would be fabulous um, for more people to adopt. Um, Of all the men in my life, I reckon that um, the idea of just going and playing golf with somebody and having a chat to somebody who knew the right questions to ask and the right responses to provide, I think that would be fabulous. So, yeah, those sorts of programs would probably be very effective. Yeah, and I'm sure mentoring men offer tele-remote interactions as well. So I think men listening to this could well look up mentoring men and find the Mm. resources there because they're great resources, I agree. And the men in your life, your sons, as you said, have really turned into men through this process and one of them has become a dad. Yes, Um, his partner was pregnant um, during the fires, so that was, it was, beautiful but at the same time very worrying because it put more pressure on us sort of not expecting but he was here fighting the fires and god it would just be terrible if something had happened to him but Mm. yes he's got a beautiful little girl now Isla yeah my grandy (laughs) (laughs) your first grandchild yes yes exciting yeah. So some good things have come through and one of them is your writing, which as you said earlier, it's it was started started for a reason to help you debrief as any good writer, any natural writer finds writing therapeutic and you did find yep. writing was uh, was a therapy and it's helping others and it's going to help so many people. The first book which I've read about the fires is so instructive. Um hate to say it, very entertaining as well, <laughs> but um, de- and captivating and hard to put down. But your second book as well has come a- around now. And you said off air earlier that you've been carrying this book around in your mind for years and years. Um, what is it about this second book that's really captivated you? Well, um, that book came about because when I first came to Walwa, I was a tenant in a house just up the road. And when I first moved in, um, I felt that the house was a bit spooky <laughs> and I, yeah, just, just odd things. Like I felt that things moved and oh. I came to Walwa with uh, my Kelpie dog and um, the Kelpie wouldn't go into one particular bedroom at all. And wow. just every now and then he'd stare at things and his hackles would go up. And anyway... I thought the house was haunted. So I asked this beautiful old man who lived up the road. He, he was a neighbour and he'd been born and bred in the Upper Murray. And he he thought himself a little bit of a lady killer. He was lovely. He used to come into work and have a cup of tea with girls. Oh. Anyway, he told me the story of the house as a ghost story. Yeah. He was trying to put the wind up me even more, I think. Yeah. Um, but yes, indeed, there was um, a very odd story about um, a mysterious man that came into town and uh, sort of uh, stalked, if you like, these two women and eventually married one of them and uh, the other sister died under mysterious circumstances and then all sorts of odd things happened and then eventually uh, he, he and his wife had this car accident just over there (laughs) out of my window and his wife was incinerated and then was it murder or was it an accident was he the victim of um post-war ptsd and that's why he was a bit odd or was he a malicious conniving murderer and um anyway so this story was sort of sitting in my head and uh my husband and i went to 
um, the archives and did all this research. And then it just, you know, I got busy. We had uh, a business to run and we had yeah. children and blurbity blurb. And it kind of just kept there sitting in there wiggling around. Mm. And then come the bushfires, the house that was the center stage where I was living, center stage for this drama, it burnt. And now it's just become this ruined of, you know, the chimney and some bits of um, uh, masonry still sticking into the air. And I thought, oh, I think you're telling me something. I need yeah. to get this book out as well. So I did more research and then finally got that book um, to print. And it's a, an interesting story, an intriguing story. And also it has some uh, echoes of our bushfire experience because yeah. it, uh, the murder or was it a murder, mm. um, happened probably about three weeks after the 1939 Black Friday bushfires. Right. And uh, maybe he was triggered by the fires. Maybe he was a victim of uh, stress and trauma of the bushfires as well. So there's some sort of echo and relevance there as well. Oh, I can't wait to read that book. That's, <laughs> that's another riveting read. Fascinating. Mm, yeah, it has been getting very good reviews from people who have read it. So it doesn't take long to read because people reckon that they just can't put the blinking thing down. Yeah, well, <laughs> same with the first book. So congratulations, Janice, Thank on these, these wonderful books um, born from tragedy, both of them. This the these this fire has really changed you and I guess you've got the advice about how to deal with fires in your book. Is there any other general advice you'd give people as to how to deal with any of these tragedies? I guess a, a major fire is only one type of tragedy, but it there's probably general advice about any tragedy. Um, you never know how you're going to react until you're in the midst of it. But I think everybody is actually much more resourceful than they give themselves credit for. And I think uh, my mantra that I live with is um, it'll be all right in the end. And if it's not all right, it's not the end. <laughs> and and I, and I think, I think I'd, I'd stick with that one. Basically, you just have to keep putting one foot in front of the other and try and keep positive. And, um, yeah, things will be all right in the end. It will be a different normal everyone moves towards a different normal after a disaster but but you'll get there and there's lots of resources available so many resources of of you know people ordinary people or professional people that are actually out there and willing and kind enough to help you that was certainly a theme in the book um, about the fires that you've just been through, that community and all the sharing of resources, whether it's mm. food, whether it's equipment and, you know, that that reminding us to reach out to neighbours and community when particularly we live in cities and we don't tend to do that, we need to remember. Yes, yes. Um, Rob Gordon always goes on about um, after a disaster, um, the crystal lattice is um, disrupted the crystal letters of community so you know there's you're connected to so many people but mm. um those connections are all disrupted during the disaster um and it's very important to re-establish the lattice and the only way you can do that is by getting out there amongst community and talking and debriefing and supporting one another and i think our community and the upper murray in general has done that very well Beautiful. And it probably will need to keep doing that for years to come because we know the fallout 
and the need for help really doesn't kick in till a while after and and people aren't usually ready um, for help until quite a while after a big tragedy like that. Hmm. Again, when, when I was talking to Rob Gordon, he mentioned that um, at the two to three year mark, mm. there's usually some fairly dramatic changes in people's lives or their aspirations or or their direction forward, as it were. And that certainly happened to a number of people that I know. Yeah, personally, my relationship has broken down. Oh, sorry. But, yeah, but um, and and that uh, drama has been harder to deal with than a natural disaster for me well it's so personal I imagine mm, yeah Whereas... but um I think for for my husband I think he just uh discovered that uh he just really needed to reorganize his life and make changes to make himself happy and and that's that's fine I I I want him to be happy so um if what he's doing is making him happy then that's good We'll still be friends. We'll still work it out somehow. And we've still got family together, so obviously. Well, as you said, you can't go through something like this and not be changed. Um, I I do hope that he works his way back to you. (laughs) Thank you. And look, it sounds like we're going from another tragedy to something joyful, but I do ask all my guests, what makes you psyched for life? Ah, nature. Oh, my Oh, my my favourite thing, if if I'm feeling at all down, is um, literally to go out in the paddocks, go out amongst nature. Um, you'll often find me lying on my back in the middle of the paddock, looking at, at the trees or the clouds and the cattle come up and they kind of get a bit curious as to what on earth this strange human is doing lying in the middle of the paddock. Um, so you get a really good view up their noses and... <laughs> But, um, yeah, just nature. Um, it just literally grounds you. Uh, the size of it um, just puts everything back into perspective. We're so small in comparison. And, yeah, um, the environment keeps going and it gets better. And, yeah, it's a cycle. Everything's a cycle. So it's very grounding. So, yes, nature psychs me. <laughs> That's beautiful. And it reminds me of that great phrase, what hurts heals. So mm-hmm. fires hurt and nature heals again. Absolutely, yes. So to find Janice's books, and they are called From the Inside, as well as White Lies, Where There Is Smoke, they're both available on Amazon and a Facebook page for the books headed by the title of the second book, which is Janice Newnham, White Lies, Where There Is Smoke. It'll get you there. Um, yes, I, because I'm a self-published author, I'm the distributor and the reseller. So um, you can purchase direct from myself through the Facebook page. And I can attest to the book arriving in a beautiful one piece with fabulous information inside and being absolutely a stunning book to read. Well worth it for so many different reasons. Thank you. Thank you, Janice, so much for sharing all this invaluable information with us of your experiences. Thank you very much for having me. It's actually been an interesting experience exploring it all.
If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please rate, review and subscribe on Apple, Spotify or wherever you're listening right now. Plus, don't forget you can access all of the resources mentioned in today's podcast via the show notes. Is there a pressing issue or topic you'd like me to discuss? Head to my Instagram at dramandaferguson and send me a DM. I love hearing from my listeners. If anything discussed in this podcast has caused you concern or distress, contact your general practitioner or health provider. To locate a psychologist in your area, call the Australian Psychological Society and locate Find a Psychologist Service on 1800 333 497 or visit www.findapsychologist.org.au. If you or someone you know is in crisis, Lifeline is available 24-7 on 13 11 14 and Kids Helpline again 24-7 on 1800 55 1800 and both are free of charge. To find out more about me, please visit my website, dramandaferguson.com.au. You can find the link in my show notes. The opinions expressed by guests in these podcasts aren't necessarily shared by me.